gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm very excited for uh, today's episode, uh, not only because uh, it's a first-time guest and a colleague of the American Enterprise Institute, but it's also um, one of the uh, core topics on the Remnant Podcast bingo card. Um, and uh, and it's going to, I just, you know, be forewarned. Uh, civic nerdiness lies ahead. So go get canned goods, do what you need to do, gird your loins um, uh, for uh, there's no turning back now. My guest today is uh, Philip Wallach. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute uh, where he studies the separation of powers with a focus on regulatory issues and the relationship between Congress and the administrative state. His latest book, why Congress, and for those with filthy minds, it's not the verb. Um, <laughs> um, why Congress? Um, no, uh, his latest book, Why Congress, he defends the centrality of Congress in America's constitutional system, traces the roots of current dysfunction, and suggests how the institution might be restored. So, Phil, welcome to The Remnant. So, I, uh, I always ask uh, authors, uh, Why'd you write this book? Um, I know why I wanted you to write this book, but why did you think this book was necessary? I've come to specialize studying in Congress in the last number of years in my life because it seems that Congress is sort of the wobbly leg of the stool and needs work. It's the part of our system that, that seems sort of under a lot of stress and not bearing up under it all that well. So thinking about how, how we can make Congress work better uh, is what motivated me to get into studying Congress. And the book is sort of premised on the idea that we need to go back to basics and really think about why the Congress is there in the first place, why representative government is, is such a marvel if we understand it properly. That's not something that most people think about very much. I, I think an awful lot of well-educated Americans who are tuned into politics, maybe they can quote you something from their eighth grade civics class, but, but on the whole, they have the sense that Congress is just a futile place. They're fed up with it and they don't have much patience for it. And they would be hard pressed to say why we should bother with it. So there we go. There's the book, Why Congress. Fair enough. I, I, um, yeah, I, I will often, as, as listeners of this podcast know, you know, make the case that, um, well, first of all, the whole idea that um, um, the three branches are co-equal is actually a fiction that comes out of the Watergate era um, because, in fact, Congress, according to the Constitution, is supreme, right? It's like, it's the only branch that can fire members of the other branch. It controls the power of the purse and taxation, which the Founding Fathers actually thought a lot about the importance of taxation. Right, it has the power to declare war. It can create. It creates all of the executive branch agencies, um, except for a handful of them. Um, it creates all the courts, except for the Supreme Court. Um, although I guess there's some weird bankruptcy court things that are kind of like complicated that we don't need to get into. It also does this thing that you know we used to tell people in grade school called write the laws, <laughs> you know, which is kind of important in a in a country. Um, 
And yet people think it's bizarre that you would want Congress to be the, the most powerful branch, um, including it seems like a lot of members of Congress who have spent the last century or so doing their best to make it not the most powerful branch. So like, where do you begin that? First of all, disagree with any of that as you, as you see fit, but where does this story of Congress voluntarily giving up its prerogatives to the executive branch and the courts, where do you think it begins? Well, it's a, it is a long story, right? It's at least a century old, maybe even more than that, really. Um, I don't disagree with anything you said, but we have the difference between now and the founding era is we have this huge body of statutory law that all, all of which comes from previous Congresses. Um, you know, none, none, of, none of the U.S. code was smuggled in any other way. But nevertheless, it creates this huge reservoir of powers for the federal government that are there on the books to be used as intended or, or more creatively, as we well know. And that means that current Congresses sort of have the luxury of coasting on past enactments in many ways. And they can argue for the executive branch making more use of old laws if they think that's convenient rather than dealing with problems by actually doing the hard work of, of hashing out new laws that can pass the Congress. So that changes the dynamics in some important ways and some ultimately maybe destructive ways for our politics. We do have to understand that the Congress has created the administrative state. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't fooled into doing so, really. It, it did so in full knowledge of what it was doing because it thought that was the most effective or convenient way to deal with a lot of problems that it wanted to deal with, uh, in some ways because it would take the responsibility away from the lawmakers and put it on the denizens of the executive branch. But I think anytime we try to think about solutions for this dynamic, we have to remember that it was the lawmakers that did it before, and it will be lawmakers who do it more in the future. We sort of have to reckon with that fundamental uh, tendency in our system. Yeah, I mean, to use it like a admittedly bad and flawed analogy, right? It's sort of like some mad scientist creates an AI computer that takes over everything. And then it's fine to point out that the mad scientist, that the, a previous mad scientist did it, but now the AI is running everything and uh, new, a new generation of scientists need to take that power back from the, the AI. Similarly, like with the administrative state, I kind of doubt that, you know, it's sort of, what was it? Um, was it McGovern who had that line where he said, if this bill leads to racial quotas, um, I'll eat the legislation. And um, of course, it led to racial quotas. Like there's a there's a major law of unintended consequences thing going on here. Unless you're telling me that you think that the people who created some of these things all think that if they were alive today, think that things are working exactly as they plan, which I just have no, a hard time no, believing. No, I, I would say you're right that in the end, these huge reservoirs of power that get created end up being used for purposes that, that, that the folks who framed the laws really never had in mind. Um, but, they did, but they did definitely mean to make meaningful grants of power to the executive branch that would allow the executive branch to do stuff without their further involvement uh, in, many, in many cases. So I, I think 
they were willing to live with the potential agency problems there. Civil Rights Act transformation is an interesting an interesting tale. I do think that the folks who passed it were sincere in, in thinking that it was not supposed to lead to racial quotas, but it sort of took on a life of its own within a remarkably short span of time. You make the point that there's a difference between democracy and representative government. So what is that difference for the layman? You know, what's the elevator pitch for that? And also, like, what is it that you think Congress is supposed to be doing? What are its core functions that you think it's supposed to be doing that it is no longer doing? I go back way, way into history to sort of uncover where where the, the roots of our representative government come from back in the emergence of parliament in the I don't know, 12th, 13th, 14th century England. The point there is that representative government really emerges without any idea of democratic accountability. It's a sense of drawing people from different parts of the country and different estates and different feudal orders and such. But the idea is, is not just to sort of know what the whole public will would be. They didn't have any such concept at that time. The idea was just to draw in all the different elements because it was complicated and they understood that it was a big enough country to be complicated. And in order to know about what was going on in the realm, you needed to draw in people from all different parts of it to discuss the issues. But these were, I mean, just to, just, just to make the point clear, like you're not talking about representatives from necessarily from the lower classes. You're no. talking about stakeholders, right? You know, earls, dukes, clergy, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, and, and, and pretty early on you get people who are more or less representing sort of the new money, mm-hmm. burgers. 12th century nouveau riche, I hate those guys. You get a sense that it's, that it's an important thing to draw these elements together and put them in debate together as a way of legitimizing the decisions of the king. This is how you sort of get the principle of consent for taxation operating at a nation state level. None of this depends on a sense that we're exactly channeling the will of 51% of the people. It's closer to a, a consensual idea where you need to have everyone involved in decisions to get their buy-in such that you get legitimacy. And that's really the key argument of my book is that if we don't have a sense of trusted representatives from all around our extended republic coming together and working out the issues of the day, then our attempts to deal with those problems don't don't end up with much legitimacy. If we try to run things all through the administrative state, it has all sorts of sort of fake ways of of trying to generate legitimacy, uh, and, and they don't they don't work that well. Uh, they're not really fooling people into thinking that it's a genuinely representative institution, right? The notice and comment rulemaking tries to simulate representativeness in some ways, but it, it, it's a very artificial exercise. Genuine representative politics as embodied in Congress is real. It's an unpredictable mix, right? You sort of take all these different elements, you mix them up. To go back to your opening jibe about the verb Congress, there's all these nice metaphors about politics as a form of intercourse, which I actually find rather attractive. Politics is a fecund activity. It's supposed to generate solutions that weren't there before by bringing these different elements in contact with each other. If it becomes this sort of stage-managed exercise in name-calling instead, then we don't really get that from it. And that's largely where we are today. Yeah, so like uh, the example I often, or the, the image I often use, which is sort of a, 
inspired somewhat from, I'm sure you're, you remember it, Ben Sass's sort of seven-minute schoolhouse rock thing at the beginning of the Kavanaugh hearings, which I do recommend people go listen to, is, is that Congress is where politics is supposed to happen. It's where diverse groups, diverse interests, with a, a presumption of a little bit of good faith and a little bit of, um, uh, you know, optimism about the ability to come to some sort of negotiated compromise that leaves everybody off a little better than some zero sum thing. Um, and it's supposed to be on display for the entire country to see that's where politics is happening. And if politics happens there, it doesn't spill out into the rest of the country. Now, I think we have our culture war problems for a lot of reasons, but I think one of them, one of the reasons why everything gets so politicized is when Congress doesn't sponge up the requisite amount of politics in our life and let people have those arguments there, those arguments seep out and sort of get into the groundwater and, and, and flood areas of life that shouldn't be politicized um, because those arguments can't be taken care of where they are. Not the perfect metaphor, but it seems to me that like having Congress actually do its job would, would, would take some of the pressure off other institutions that are being politicized as a result of Congress not doing its job. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. The word politics has come to have such an ugly connotation for so many people that the idea that it should be anywhere in our system comes to seem not so intuitive. When we say that politics should be happening in Congress, for some people, that's just a reason not to like not to like it. Um, and that's, that's kind of an unfortunate challenge that Congress has to face. It's like, even if it does the right thing, it's not going to be a popular part of the government because there's an awful lot of people who sort of are uncomfortable with the idea of disagreement at this point. <laughs> in spite of believing in diversity, they don't actually really want there to be diversity of opinion and, and the difficult work of having to persuade each other and live with the differences. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her 
parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Historically, I mean, I, I don't want to go back to Daniel Webster, but like in the 20th century, when was the last time Congress was really playing its role properly, doing doing things the way it's supposed to do? And are, are, or are there any models from fairly recent history about what it would look like to get Congress back on track? Yeah, so the first part of the book tries to show Congress working uh, because I think a lot of people aren't sure what that would get us or what that's supposed to look like. So I have two chapters there. One is about Congress during World War II, which is something most people have never thought about. And the other one is about Congress in the run-up to the Civil Rights Act. Um, so Congress in World War II, the story there is that Congress is the place that figures out how to share burdens. That that's It's the place where we deal with these very thorny issues of mutual suspicion and, and a sense that things need to be fair because even because there were these huge burdens imposed by by World War II, um, the American people were not always so eager to shoulder them. Um, there was a sense of futility from World War One, right? There was a sense that the sacrifices that the country had made during the First World War were just an enormous waste, um, and so there was a lot of question about, well, there's just the burden of taxation uh, was an enormous increase. The sense of rationing, inflation, uh, all these different kinds of things. And while, while it's very true that, you know, we should credit the generals with, with coming up with the strategy that won the war. And uh, when, when it comes to the home front, Congress really was the one that, that found our way through a lot of these difficult issues. Um, there was a lot of very strong conflicts between Congress and President Roosevelt, uh, especially after the 1942 midterms in which conservatives did very well. Um, and Congress overrode FDR's veto a lot of times, including on tax, tax issues. Um, there was this very dramatic moment when, in fact, when the Senate Majority Leader, Albin Barkley, who would later be the Vice President, resigned from his job in protest at how he was being treated by, uh, by, the, by Roosevelt. Um, and then he was reelected to his job by his grateful 
colleagues who, who said, thank you for standing up to the president. Um, but he, uh, yeah, co Congress really was the one calling the shots ultimately, and that was very healthy. And Congress was checking a lot of the sort of self-aggrandizing tendencies in the executive branch that would have sort of taken some wartime measures and extrapolated them out into eternity, uh, such as uh, one thing I go into is the idea of a, a manpower law where you would have a, basically a draft for civilian work, um, which was a very popular idea and makes some amount of intuitive sense. After all, if you can be drafted to go die on the front, why shouldn't you be drafted and sent to a factory to help build war material? Um, but Congress resisted that on the idea that we were fighting to save a free country, not, not, not to create, you know, a socialized state. And so Congress really did a lot during World War II that, that, that's underappreciated. Back then, conservatives liked Congress a lot. Uh, they, they thought of it as sort of the earthy branch, the, the place that was against the utopian tendencies of the, of the executive branch. And so I'm, I, part of what I hope to do with the book is revive that conservative idea of sort of Congress as, as potentially the earthy, the earthy branch sort of in contact with the people um, and, and sort of the grubby realities of, of life. Um, so, I mean, just, and, and this is just a, I, I am now importing one of my minor annoyances as a pundit into this uh, conversation. When we say Congress, I mean, when you say Congress, you mean the House and the Senate, right? But like, we also call the House Congress. And it is just as a writer, it is a very frustrating thing because <laughs> you have to, um, and there's no, like, representatives doesn't sound good and it's a long word and, and, um, and congressperson is not euphonious and it's unwieldy. Um, and congresswoman apparently is toxic masculinity. So it's a huge problem. But like, um, how much of our problems with Congress are really problems with the House? Or are, are the problems that bedevil the House different than problems that bedevil the Senate? I think today the problems are somewhat similar, but that's a pretty recent development. You know, the Senate historically has been a place where the individual members protected their, their own prerogatives more jealously and, and just have a generally, they're much higher opinion of themselves because there are fewer of them and they feel like very important people. There was a, there was a mystique about the Senate for a long time that I think was probably pretty healthy. But I think that the Senate has kind of become pretty house-like in the 21st century. We have this job of Senate Majority Leader, which really is not a job with a very long historical lineage in its current form. But the Senate Majority Leader acts like the Speaker of the House in many ways today. There's a sense that the Majority Leader sets the agenda, and, and nobody else really has the chance to question them, even though all these things happen in the Senate by unanimous consent. So, in fact, any one senator could, could really grind the chamber to a halt if they were really determined to do so. Um, but there's a sense that they don't, they don't want to do that. And so, in the end, we live with the, the, the leader pretty much calling the shots today. So, I, I think 
a lot of a lot of my book's argumentation is is about the losses we have from both the House and the Senate coming to operate in this sort of top-down, leader-dominated model. What are they called? The four corners? Right. There's there's this sense that only the leaders are the really important people and the rest of them are just kind of there to pull the lever the way they're told. That's very destructive of this representative ideal that, that we talked about earlier, where the point is the diversity. The point is to let these different elements have their say and really mix it up. And if they all just sort of get compacted into two camps, we really lose a lot of that complexity and, and the whole process loses a lot of its vitality. Right. I mean, I mean this, this sort of gets to my point about like sort of as Congress as a sponge or a filter of politics, it needs to be, it needs to be a robust ecosystem, right? It has to be like, the, it has to be a thick charcoal filter. And you only get that when you empower all the members to represent the interests and the perspectives that they're there to represent. Right. In practice, that means arguing about a whole lot of things, some of which won't lead anywhere or will make things very complicated. And that, that's why we don't do it, right? It's convenient to suppress lots of arguments because the kinds of things that we might have to say in the course of those arguments might be complicated. And we might even, or we might find that we agree with the other side more than is politically convenient for the folks who are trying to frame the other side as, as the SOBs we need to get out of there in the next election. Once we actually engage on substance, things get messy. To me, that's likely to be productive. That's likely to be a good thing. But you can understand the, the desire to just suppress the messiness, to make everything clean and simple, and to say, oh, well, the party professionals have figured out all the differences themselves and are presenting you this great package, and all you, the voter, has to do is choose which package you want. That's the sort of, that's the Wilsonian vision of politics that I, that I say is largely ascendant today, which really takes, takes the politics out of politics to a large extent. Or if, if there is a vitality to the politics, it's supposed to be all within the parties. And I just, I don't have a sense that that's working particularly well today either. Well, before we get back to that. Um, Can you resist the Woodrow Wilson bait? Not today, Satan. Um, on this point about representation, right? That it's, it's supposed to have buy-in from stakeholders and all that. Um, I understand it's never going to be repealed. I can understand that it's probably folly for you to get too deeply invested in the argument about repeal. But do you think the 17th Amendment was a mistake? I think that you, you have to think of it in the context of, this, of the rise of democracy as a separate ideal. Because really, democracy had already triumphed as an ideal before we got the 17th Amendment. And so the amendment itself, I think, I think of it, was, it was largely superfluous. I find it somewhat appealing to believe that if we had a more robust representative ideal that wasn't always purely democratic in the one man, one vote, public policy should always reflect the opinion polls kind of mental model. I tend to think that that would be healthy if we had a, a different re reverence for representation of, of, in some other way. But we don't. Overwhelmingly, people's sense of what representation is about is just supposed to be a, a transmission mechanism for democratic opinion, for mass opinion. Given that way of thinking, like the idea that your senators are supposed to just reflect the views of the people of the state 
um, and not be filtered through some extra mechanism or representing some other corporate body just seems so, so basically intuitive. Formally requiring it as a matter of constitutional law doesn't actually, I think, make that big of a difference. So I am, I am not a democracy voluptuary, which doesn't mean I like authoritarianism or any of that kind of stuff. I, but I just, I, I see democracy as, as a process question. You know, it's, I'm for Churchillian about it. I, it's the least bad of all the options, but I'm much more on team Republic than I am team democracy. And I know there are a lot of people who work very, very hard to make that a really dumb distinction. And there are people in our little corner of, of the world at AI working very, very hard to make that a meaningful <laughs> distinction. Um, and I, I fear that we are going to be, uh, that for all of AI's vaunted efforts on this front, which I support entirely, and of course, we all genuflect to comrade Yuval Levin, our, you know, our, 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 our big toe, as they would say in stripes. Um, uh, I think we're going to end up being the handful of people at the stadium uh, cheering for the other team um, when it comes to this stuff. That said, why did it happen? I mean, it's been like the house is its own creature. And we should talk about that in a second, but like with the Senate, the inset, the whole structural design of the place was to make it immune to the things that happened to the house, or at least a big part of that, right? It is like six year terms, cooling saucer, uh, unanimous consent. Um, what are the sort of structural reasons why senators basically are glorified house members now? Is it the Hawthorne effect, you know, which is that, you know, the Hawthorne effect in social sciences is, is when you observe something, you change the behavior of the people that you're observing. Um, is it, uh, and so is, is it, it can't just be cameras in the Senate, right? But is it the, is it the focus of the Senate that, is it the media attention that the Senate gets that changes the behavior? Is it the fail? Is it the breakdown of parties? I mean, what, how many squares on my remnant bingo card are we going to fill in for why this is happening? I think that I'm somewhat persuaded by the Francis Lee explanation for this era of politics having a lot to do with the way that the chambers have structured themselves, which is to think about politics always on the knife edge and the sense that the next election could could turn things the other direction, and that sense being accurate. I think that an awful lot of senators really have bought into the idea that they need first and foremost to be good team players. You know, incumbency advantage in general is down. I think that it basically doesn't exist in the House anymore, and it's much, much lower than it was in the Senate. So you, you probably have senators accurately perceiving that most of what the next election is about is not whether they can dis cultivate this distinctive individual presence where they get, you know, sort of credibility with their own state citizens. It's mostly just about which party the national electorate wants to vote out at, at the next election. And of, of course, their state's voters are going to be the, the important part of that. But the national trends are so powerful in this current era that it makes some amount of sense for people to just say, okay, well, I need to be a good team player so we can do our best work at the national level because that's what's going to determine everything. And I think there's a kind of a willingness to subordinate one's own individuality to that pure partisan agenda 
And that has a lot to do with why you're willing to sign on to just be a, a vote caster. Um, and I think, you know, the more the Senate becomes a place where what we really do is help the president confirm their appointees, right? That's sort of, I think an awful lot of people think of that as the Senate's most important job today because it does grind on. It is important. And all that has become so much more controversial with the sense that maybe we could just stop all of the president's appointments if the political environment was right for that. And we've never had that yet. We'll see if it comes sometime around the bend. But uh, the sense that we got to get our guys in there so we can confirm our president's judges and and cabinet officers and sub-cabinet officers, because otherwise we're, we're going to be losing in the branches where policy is actually made and, and the fights are actually meaningful. I think it's this willingness to believe that the Senate isn't that important of a place, that, that the best way for me to have an impact is to, is to be a good team player. And the best way to do that is to go along with Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer. All those leaders are, in fact, highly competent partisan leaders. That is a thing we should appreciate about them. They're good at their jobs if you conceive their jobs as being sharpening partisan conflict and, and trying to make the other side look bad. In doing so, holding their own team together. I, I'm just constantly amazed at how well Mitch McConnell holds together Republicans in the Senate. It's, it seems like a very hard job, but he's very, very good at it. To my mind, like the fact that they're so good at that is deleterious to the institution's overall health and, and to our constitutional system's proper functioning. But that's how they conceive of their job. That's how a lot of their colleagues want them to conceive of their job. And that's why it's become such a house-like place in many ways. And I get there's liberal media bias. There's all sorts of reasons for it. But all of the chatter when Nancy Pelosi stepped down as speaker was about how she was the best speaker in you know modern memory, uh, belongs on the Mount Rushmore of great speakers and all that kind of stuff. And seen from the perspective that you're describing of managing the dysfunctional, transformed role, nature of the House as she was, she was good at doing the job under the new rules, but there was no room to talk about how the new rules, the new status quo about how the house works is really bad. Right. And like, like people say, Oh, she was so brilliant about getting legislation that she would never bring any, out anything onto the floor until she knew she had the votes for it. And then it was like, you know, people always oh, in that brilliant, isn't that wonderful. And my view was, no, that's terrible. Right. Cause like it's supposed to be a, Legislation is supposed to come, I'm a very Hayekian guy, right? It's supposed to come from the bottom up. It's supposed to be a process of discovery. You're supposed to have hearings and regular order and debate and all these kinds of stuff. Instead, it was imposed from above. And I think that part of the problem, that's sort of why I mentioned the Hawthorne effect in the media thing is like the media has a vested interest. And I mean this on the right and the left. It's not a sort of conventional media bias point. It's not an ideological point. It's very much people talked about this kind of thing during the Cold War about how the media loves to boil down big, complicated systems and issues to a handful of players and make it a contest of wills and skill between those players and everyone else is just sort of an extra or in the background of the movie. And covering one person who runs Congress is much easier than covering all of Congress. And so there's this 
vested interest in building up the leadership as being truly in charge because that way your beat is constrained to this one visual, you know, this one personality. Um, I don't think it's the only explanation, but I think it's part of it. You know, I have a little bit of musing in, in some of the books sort of interstitial material uh, about the fact that it is just so much easier to think about presidents. Presidents just play such an outsized role in our imagination because, because we can know them. We feel we can know them. And Congress is really hard to know in its full sort of decentralized glory. And so, yeah, there is a desire to make it easier to know by, by thinking of it as a creature of its, of its leaders. And I think the also strongly going along with what you were just talking about is, is the nationalization of so much of our politics, right? And so much of our political media. I think, I think it's hard for us to remember that like the way that the way that the normal person gets their coverage of politics today is just completely different than it was a couple generations ago. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm from Cleveland. I grew up reading the Cleveland Plain Dealer and the way that it would have covered politics when I was a kid is just completely different from what I would get from logging on, going to the New York Times or, and whatever. The Cleveland Plain Dealer's coverage is probably withered and it's just carrying Associated Press stories today, right? It's not, there's so much less coverage of our individual local delegations than there used to be. And so that contributes to the sense, again, it's a deep personalization of, of the office holders, uh, a sense that they're all, it really the most important thing about you is the letter next to your name, the D or the R, that really we don't need to know that much more about you. And to the extent we do, it's this voting record, right? We can, we can look at your DW nominate score to see like whether you're a good, a good foot soldier for your, your, your team or, or, or a mediocre one. Um, yeah, it's sort of like in those ads when when Republicans ran against Dem- Democrats in every part of the country, they would say, look, so-and-so voted 95% of the time with Nancy Pelosi. Well, the reason why they voted 95% of the time with Nancy Pelosi is Nancy Pelosi wouldn't present legislation unless she had the entire caucus already committed to voting for it. So, of course, they voted 95% of the time. Right, yeah, I, I've written a little bit about how this sense that we're super duper polarized between the two parties ideologically, which is largely derived from these voting records. That's what the DW nominate scores are that political scientists like so much. That is somewhat artifactual. It's, it's created by, by the agenda manipulation, by making sure that we only vote on things where we are really divided in, in, or in any case, much more than we used to. So yeah, I would like to see much more stuff come to the floor that is kind of ambiguous in, in its uh, orientation that, you know, maybe if we argue about and amend enough, it will end up with 350 votes. Maybe not. But we just, we don't do a lot of that today. We, we, we prepare everything largely in the leadership chambers. And, you know, there's no doubt there's some real politics and compromise happening there. I don't want to make it sound like the way that Nancy Pelosi operated was just that she decided something and that was all on her say-so and everyone just went along with that. There is some real politicking going on behind the scenes, but we lose the benefit of having it play out in this public forum and we lose the sense that persuasion across party lines is something that that we can really hope to have happen sometimes. So, uh, yeah, we want the spectacle of politics. It's not always pretty. Uh, but we really need it. 
what the hell do we do about it? Right? I mean, um, the worst thing about writing books is where you do, when you describe problems is then say, okay, so what do you want to do to it? Do it, do to fix it. What are your solutions? And I, I, solutions are hard. Um, I mean, solutions that have a chance of finding purchase in the real world are hard. It's very easy to say people need to change their expectations, but like, how do you do it? Right. So like, what, what are some concrete things that we could do that would at the margins incrementally move us in the right direction towards making Congress be what it's supposed to be? There's the big we, and that means sort of the American people pulling all of our levers to change the way our political process works. I, I, I am largely in thinking about the solution, thinking of we in terms of community of people who are thinking about Congress all the time, including the members themselves. And I, I think the answers are a little bit different on those two different levels. So we, the big picture, the American people, like we should be pretty unhappy with the electoral process that produces the kinds of people we get there today. I mean, it's largely congressional primaries are bad. It's very hard to say how to mount an effective case for doing that, given the affinity for little d democracy being as strong as it is. If there's any state party that's thinking about making a push for taking control of nominations themselves instead of making it open to a primary electorate, I, that, that should be encouraged. They should try to fight that fight and see if they can win. Now, of course, the state of many state parties is not so great in the current political landscape. And so in, not in every case would that actually be such a big improvement. Right. I mean, it's, it's, to illustrate this point just for a second, because people understand how bad, because of George Santos, right? You'll often hear people say, how did the Republicans let this guy even run, right? And I think it's just a good illustration of this point. I mean, I'm, I'm a well-established despiser of primaries in all their forms. We're one of the only advanced democracies in the world where if you want to run for the highest legislature in the land as a member of a certain party, the party can't stop you. You know, I mean, like in, in normal countries, <laughs> if you want to be, you know, run on the run for the to be the delegate to the Bundestag or whatever for the Christian Democrats, you have to get approval from the Christian Democrats to run, uh, you know, to run in whatever the equivalent of their primary is or to be on a ballot. But in America, if you file your thirty five dollar fee or whatever it is or kill the right requisite amount of goats on the altar, you get to run as a Republican or a Democrat and like the parties have no say about it. And people think, well, that's democracy for you. No, it's, I mean, yeah, it is in a sense, but democracy is not a good thing in this sense. The institutions need some stewardship, some power over their own brand if they're going to actually work on their brand. Institutional gatekeeping is a very healthy thing to use and rely on. You know, to the extent we have a little de-democratic or populist impulse that makes us suspicious of those things, I think that's largely to our detriment. And, you know, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about things that shake up the candidate winnowing process, ranked choice voting and final five and that kind of stuff. Like, I don't think that's a silver bullet. I'm enthusiastic that it maybe helps people select candidates that, that, are, that are less zany in a lot of cases. Um, we, we have one U.S. representative uh, who, who's only, who only won his first election because of ranked choice voting. That's Jared Golden, 
of, of, of the Northern District of Maine. And he, he's, a, he's an interesting member, actually. He's one, one of the more moderate members in the House, more, more willing to buck his party. So I think that's something we should experiment with that would be helpful. Um, and I think people should try to be attentive to their local members and care about who your local member is more than just the D or the R by their name. Like, we want to cultivate a, a, a relationship of trust between constituents and their and their representatives. Uh, I don't know the easiest way of making that meaningful in a case where members of the House represent districts with 750,000 people. So then people say, well, let's expand the House so they have smaller districts. Okay, maybe. Um, I, I'm, I'm not the biggest enthusiast for this idea, to be honest, because I kind of feel like a larger chamber will have an even greater tendency towards centralized power um, because it's just harder to coordinate more bodies. Um, but I'm not, I'm not against the sort of moderate proposal um, to make the House something like 570 members or something. I think that would be an interesting way to shake things up. Maybe it would sort of re help, help this link between the constituents and their representative, and maybe it would shake the place up in useful ways by creating this wave of freshman representatives um, who, might, who might think about what the place ought to be about in a different way. Um, so uh, just, I, I just have to be on record here. The first piece I ever wrote that got published in a major publication was in 1992, day after the election, uh, for the Wall Street Journal on why we needed to expand Congress. And it's been something of my white whale for a very long time. Um, and it's sort of, as you probably know, it's kind of like this weird dork secret society in Washington where like, oh, you're into that too? Uh, <laughs> because uh, every time I, you know, once you start looking around, there's a, our, our colleague, you know, Lyman Stone is a, a, a enthusiast about this. Sean Trendy is an enthusiast about this. There are a bunch of people around who are deeply sort of darkly, somewhat shamefully sympathetic to this idea. And part of that community is very, very strongly little D democratic. Yeah. And their motivation for doing it is a sense that it would sort of increase the delegate like properties of representation as opposed to to trust that that it sort of forces people to just be more like carrying the message from the district and that's all there is to their job and voting voting the way that their constituents want them to and so in some sense i because i favor the sort of trustee idea of, of representation I, i'm sometimes wary of of some of some of the people in, in that world and i do think james madison has a very eloquent warning in the Federalist Papers. Uh, I want to say it's 57, but I might be off by one or two, um, where he talks about if you, make, if you make a legislature big enough, it starts to resemble a mob, and it will be characterized by some of the same dynamics as a mob. Um, and I worry, I worry about that. So I, I have some scenarios for the futures of Congress at, at the end of my book. And one of them is called rubber stamp. And part of what happens in that scenario is that the, somebody has the bright idea and expands the House to 1776 members. <laughs> the, the point of that is as a part of the House becoming like even more of a peanut gallery than it is today. All right. So first of all, 
you'll never be forgiven for offering thoughtful and and substantive criticisms of my hobby horse. That said, look, I, I think those are good points. I mean, I, I legitimately do. And I've become, even though I will never truly let go of this idea, I'm more with you. We, we should explain to listeners in case they, some don't know, most do, because they've heard me talk about this stuff before, but I'll go, I'll, 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 I'll go John Podoritz on people and explain. The, the classic thing in the political science literature about the role of legislators is the, the, the trustee model versus the delegate model. And the delegate model is sort of like, you know, giving uh, instructions to your ambassador to Washington and they just have to do whatever they're told by voters, right? And it's sort of like the, the Burkean letter, you know, addressed to the elders of Bristol or whatever it's called, where Burke says, no, 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 I am not just here to be your remote control. You sent me uh, to Parliament, in the case of Burke, to be, uh, to use my wisdom, my judgment, my discretion uh, as, as I see fit to best represent your interests and also the interests of the nation, right? So trustees do what they think is best and then they're, they're subjected to periodic review called elections and delegates suspend their own desires and just do essentially what they're told by their constituents. And there's a funny analog to this in, in my line of work. You know, there are, there are talk radio and cable people who think their job is simply to be a delegate of their audience. And then there are other people who think their job is to actually be willing to disagree with their audience um, if they think their audience is wrong about something. And I think this is, gets at the heart of one of the dysfunctional tensions in American political media, you know, life, cultural life is this idea of, of are you just simply a servant of your fan base or whatever you want to, or your constituency? Or are you actually something like a statesman who is supposed to offer? Are you just a transmission mechanism? Right. Which goes very well with this little de-democratic idea where if we imagine constituents sort of have well-formed views about everything, then all we need to do is transmit them and aggregate them and see what happens and follow the will of the majority because that's what democracy is all about. In my view, that's a very impoverished model because, in fact, people do not have well-formed views about almost anything. And right. we ought to, again, this goes back to the congress as a verb thing. <laughs> like some, some of the people who would like to see a much larger house, maybe including Lyman, would like people to just stay in their districts and like vote, vote from home. And it's like not so important that they ever go to Washington and get socialized into the ways of Washington and rub up against their colleagues because all the, what they're supposed to be doing is transmitting their constituents' desires and so they should just stay home with their constituents to be able to do that. Um, I think that's very destructive. The work of politics really benefits from having these trusted representatives literally encounter each other face to face and work out. There's this whole favor economy and respect uh, culture that that is very healthy and productive that makes politics work and function across the whole range of issues, not just like voting the right way on one thing, but actually creating a, a functional system where we respect each other and try to accommodate each other's values and needs over the, over the long run. Um, so uh, to me, yeah, it's, it's not, it's, 
you, you can still have more sort of delegate or trustee tendencies within that, within that sense. Like, I think there is a legitimate tension. This is all, in some ways, the American founders were, were somewhat more sympathetic to the delegate side than, than to the Burke trustee side. But, um, but they rejected the idea of instructions. That was an active debate in the, in the early years of the Constitution was whether, whether districts should be able to pass instructions that were binding on the representatives. We decided against that. And I, was, I agree with you entirely. It's, 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 it's not an either or, it's a both and, right? I mean, and one of the things you expect from a politician is to know where he or she has some running room and some, and, and, and some autonomy and agency to figure out how to come down. And then there's some other things that are probably just drop dead issues for their daily. And it's not because they have, it's some philosophical rule that they're following. And so they know their voters, right? And so like, if you're from a heavily agrarian state that does soybeans, you're not going to come out with, you know, and you want to get reelected, you know, you can do a lot of things about Section 230 or, you know, uh, capital gains taxes or whatever. And your district is probably going to say, yeah, whatever, whatever you think is best. But you screw with the soybeans, you're going to hear from them, right? And so it's, you know, the, the delegate stuff is considered the sort of the, 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 the third rail stuff for a politician. And the trustee stuff is, is where they have discretion. And, you know, and that's okay. That's life, right? That's politics. And... Um, but anyway, the reason I got onto this digression, one, I wanted to explain to listeners who don't know the trustee versus delegate thing, but two, um, I get your points and I, I think they are well taken about the, the sort of emphasis on the democracy, you know, uber alles stuff when it comes to expanding Congress. But part of it, what makes it still attractive to me is as a remedy against some of the things that make Congress dysfunctional, right? I mean, it's like to the extent gerrymandering is a problem. Well, you know, the smaller the district, the harder it is to sort of inorganically or inauthentically gerrymander a district. When you have districts that are larger than I think seven of the 13 colonies in in terms of population, uh, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our house members are essentially representing populations that the founders intended simply for senators. Um, and, uh, and I think that like, there is a, if you lower the value in a certain way of a house seat so that people, you know, it's sort of like the, the largest legislature, I think in the world, it's either Greenland or New Hampshire, but I'm thinking of New Hampshire, right? It's massive. It's like 600 people as a, as a ratio to population. It's just enormous. And one of the nice things about that is like, like you're going to get a lot more people who, for whom being a representative isn't their entire career path, isn't their entire life's goal. And they're going to be willing to sort of say some things are just not worth, you know, party loyalty is going to ask too much of me um, on this. And I think that sort of spirit is much needed. Um, but when you have a career path that, you know, when like one of the reforms and I, sh- I, I should give it back to you to respond to this, but like if I could snap my fingers, one of the reforms I would um, have is that no one is allowed to run for president. No first term Senator 
should ever be allowed to run for president at, at you know, um, and certainly not, um, uh, uh, before they've finished their first entire term, because we have too many people who land in the Senate and are already sort of again to wax Uvalian, um, using the Senate as a platform for their next thing rather than actually as an institution that they commit themselves to. So anyway, I rant over. I just I, I just wanted to get that in there in defense of the the brotherhood of the expansion. Well, yeah, that all makes that all makes some sense to me. And like I said, I, it's not that I don't see the appeal. Um, I think, I think, um, yeah, the organic community thing is is, is really a hard one, and it, it's just like a, a hard thing at the scale of our country today um, to figure out how to make it work. Like even if we expand the house, pretty significantly we sort of are still not at anything like the scale that the founders were familiar with i think that people aren't kind of fascinated enough by just how profound the consequences of having 330 some million people are for trying to hold a place together um I, th- I think it's all, I think it's really hard. So part of the argument in my book is like anything we do to keep the social peace in our in our crazy diverse extended republic is really more, more is sort of underrated, and that's why a functioning Congress is sort of underrated because people are people a lot of the commentary about Congress is like Congress will make bad laws, which is undoubtedly one hundred percent true. Congress will make a lot of bad laws. But to me, that's just like a lot less important than having a functional political process where we actually have a sense that we're doing things together, that we are taking ownership for government. Again, this sense of self-government in a republic as big as ours is going to be very attenuated. So it's not going to be such a satisfying, tastes great experience for most people, even if it's working well. We really need to like push on that margin as much as we can, because otherwise we just become completely alienated fr- from the workings of government and have a sense that it's all being imposed illegitimately on us. Right, so I sidetracked you um, both on the expand Congress and on the delegate versus trustee thing while you were going through possible solutions in the realm of the possible. Right. Well, I, now I want to shift from the big we, the American people, to the we folks in in Washington. Who, who, and, and in Congress itself, I, I do think it's much more likely that Congress can reorganize itself for sort of its members' own reasons than that any grassroots movement is going to sort of save us. Because I think these issues are pretty, they seem pretty arcane to most people, for better or for worse. Like, my hope is that the Madisonian insight of ambition counteracting ambition can still do some work for us. Um, because I think that an awful lot of members of Congress are very talented people who have a lot of ambition, who are very frustrated with how bad their jobs are today. When a member of the House who's not terribly senior, their job really consists to a remarkable degree of dialing for dollars and showing up to vote the way they're told. 
those are not those are not glamorous functions uh, at, at all. And I think a lot of people do have ambitions, both sort of self-interested, but also like noble ambitions, wanting wanting to help the country, realizing that the country does face very significant problems and, and wanting to be a part of solving them. And that impulse is very healthy and ought to lead them to rebel against the current organization of the House to some degree. And we already have seen that on the Republican side this year. I, th- I think some of what was contested in the speakership fight were actually some questions that resonated with me very deeply. Some of the dissidents against McCarthy were explicitly demanding a more decentralized house, a place where there was more chance for debate on the floor. So I liked a lot of their demands quite a bit. It's a little confusing to me because some of those same people don't really seem that interested in building coalitions in any kind of necessary way to pass laws. They seem pretty content to sort of be their own little group. And what they want is to have their say on the floor, not in the service of winning, but in the service of of being able to broadcast the messages that they want to broadcast. Um, So I think we we need the factions who are sort of feeling frustrated about not being able to do broad coalitional formation across party lines to assert themselves more today. We need the moderates to be a better organized force in Congress and and to realize that they actually are the pivotal ones who ought to control the flow of what gets through the chamber. The median voter theorem is always out there waiting, waiting to reassert itself in some way. Like anything that we can get 300 votes on in Congress ought to pass. It doesn't matter what mm-hmm. the people on the left and right think of it. Uh, if, if they, they may want us hair on fire screaming about how terrible it is, but if there are 300 members in the House that want to pass it, it ought to be able to move. But that has not been the principle at all of the House in recent years. We don't do the discovery to figure out whether there are these bills that have 300 votes. And think of an issue like immigration. Like There really ought to be a border security plus dreamers bill that gets 300 votes. Uh, and it would make some people very, very angry on both sides. But it ought to exist. We ought to be searching for it because it's very important problems. Uh, but we've pretty much like given up. We just we're managing immigration through this bizarre COVID era, you know, weird executive rule because we've just given up on the idea that passing a law in Congress is something we might do. I agree with you in 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 principle. In the abstract, Congress—you should expect—you should expect politicians to do things that are popular, right? I mean, that's just sort of like what politicians are for. Um, and we've had—I don't know who the first population was, po- politician was—to talk about seventy thirty issues, you know. But I mean, as long as I've been around, there's been somebody talking about the importance of seventy thirty issues, where. You want to be on the side of the 70 on any specific issue. And in my days as a conservative firebrand, I sometimes made arguments for the 30 issue or actually the three issue, but whatever. Um, uh, What is your theory of the case? I mean, like, like, I think we both agree parties are weak, right? Um, I think we both agree that like um, there are the tools lying around in Congress 
for factions to emerge. I mean, people have been talking about how we're going to entering in the new era of factions. You know, the GOP is becoming less of an ideological party and more of a coalitional party. Um, all these kinds of things. And yet these factions don't emerge. I mean, is it, is it the power of activist groups? Is it the power of primaries that says if you, if you veer from this 10%, you know, position that the activists all care about, we're going to replace you. Um, why, you know, what is holding back, you know, uh, all the closet normals from coming out of the closet and forming a powerful block? The power of the activists seems very important. The sort of losing of the normals out of the local and state parties seems like a very important dynamic. Those, those things both seem very, very important and very hard to reverse. The hope of my book, really, like why I, why I genuinely hope my book could do some good is that I do think part of the problem is just like a failure to understand the potential of a legislature, even amongst our legislators. Like, I really think that this, I, this Wilsonian idea that we're never going to unpack for your, for your poor, deprived listeners, this, this, <laughs> I, this idea of, of sort of grand decisional politics where everything gets decided by elections is a very, very dominant and powerful idea in our political culture today. And it has been fully embraced by the right, right? And it, that's, that's, not a, that's not something that started with Donald Trump. Uh, that's something that goes back to Republicans being in the minority in Congress for so long and conservatives, in a way, giving up on Congress because they had better prospects in the, in the White House. So you get this sense that we need to talk about the mandate. Everything is all about the mandate. And the mandate is supposed to somehow carry everything through. It doesn't actually work that well, but we have these moments when sometimes it works. That's how we got Obamacare and Tax Cuts Act of 2017. Sometimes we get some things that carry through on this sort of mandate idea. It's a very impoverished view of politics, and it doesn't really leave much role for an active thriving legislature. So part of the book is just a plea to the legislators to take themselves more seriously. Like you can be the source of more interesting generative politics, less zero-sum politics. That's what you're there to do. You're there to make these interesting factional coalitions. And to the extent you just allow yourself to be reduced to a loyal foot soldier, you've, you've, you've actually given up on something at the core of what our Republican government is supposed to be about. So I, th I think people really need that reminder because it's something that's receded from our policy. Congress as an idea does not have really that many champions today. To the extent that people are, are, are championing it, they tend to be um, people who imagine that it's the vessel for populist mandates, um, which to me is understandable and actually desirable to some extent. Like, I don't know, maybe Josh Hawley and Elizabeth Warren ought, ought to be getting together and doing the bad things they want to do together um, or the good things they want to do together. I, I don't know. I find a lot of what they might do together kind of scary, but that's an interesting latent populist thing that, that our politics could produce potentially. We ought to be sort of, from my perspective, we ought to be probing those possibilities uh, even if I'm not always so eager to see what comes comes out at the other end. I think 
too often we settle for we settle for this politics that's just so boring. The central Democrats and Republicans revile each other, and they they both have their good reasons. Like it, it's it, like it's very alienating to an awful lot of Americans who just you know there's an increasing number of registered independents for a reason because this doesn't seem healthy, and a lot of people recognize that. At the same time, you know, they, they, they don't have a good sense of what we ought to be having instead. So hopefully my book, my book is meant to give a, a little bit of a flavor that, that in our history we have had very different models of, of, of the way Congress can provide that political meat on the bones and why, why we might hope for it again. And with that, uh, Phil Wallach, thank you so much uh, for coming on The Resident. Thanks, Jonah, for having me. Okay, Philip Wallach has left the studio and um, I want to thank him for coming on. Longtime listeners probably have used a lot of ink on the bingo cards and I make no apologies for that. I really do highly recommend Philip's work, especially this book, Why Congress? I think it's sort of is one of the great opening salvos of these arguments. I mean, just so listeners know, AI um, under Robert Doerr, you know, who's not just a handsome man, but a powerful man, but also under Yuval um, in our shop, uh, there's a lot of interest in these issues right now. Um, AI, unlike some other think tanks these days, um, is not besotted and ensorcelled with uh, populism. Um, it doesn't mean it hates all populism or anything like that. And, and we don't have a single... Um, unified position on anything. That's part of the point of AI. Is it's, it's an institution full of academic freedom where scholars are allowed to take positions at odds with other scholars. Um, but uh, anyway, there are a bunch of people, colleagues, some of whom have been frequent guests on this podcast, who um, I think as a matter of scholarly, intellectual, and also civic-minded sort of patriotism, are looking really hard and really closely at these issues about, you know, delegate versus trustee, about the role of Congress, how can Congress fix itself, and how can Congress then go about fixing the problems we have in this country? Um, what is the real difference between a republic and a democracy? Uh, we got a lot of books coming down the pike on this, very good conferences about this. Um, my friend Jay Cost has got a book coming out on this. I just blurbed it. Um, and uh, Phil's book is part of that larger project. And I think it's a really important project. I think it's, 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 it's one of the things that makes think tanks, properly functioning think tanks, an important part of, um, of civic life in America. And, um, and it's given that it's some of these issues are things that I've been ranting and raving about for a very long time. Um, we're going to give it a lot of coverage and support. Um, and not just because I'm an AI guy, but because I actually care about this stuff. And um, so stay tuned. So uh, beyond that, I got, um, I got nothing for you um, other than love. And uh, please subscribe to the dispatch if you can. It's hugely important. And, um, uh, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.